new price cap for an average use of a dual fuel bill will rise to £1,971. That's up £700 from the current rate. If you're living off 84 quid a week, £700 a year on your energy bill is catastrophic. And when you look at how hard this is going to hit families across the UK, people are going to have to be choosing between eating and eating and really feeling a crunch with this. Families are bracing for less and less money to get by as energy bills rise this spring. In the fifth richest country in the world, pensioners are skipping meals so they can afford their heating bills, and parents are only switching the heating on when their children are at home. At the same time, fossil fuel companies like BP and Shell made their biggest profit in years. You have Shell with a £14 billion profit, BP with a £10 billion profit. Those are profits that are unexpected, unearned and clearly unnecessary. BP's chief executive, Bernard Looney, has said himself that BP has become a cash machine. And that's an enormous amount of money that is being concentrated by someone who's profiting off of the fact that regular people around the UK right now are struggling to pay their bills. So, what do these two things have to do with each other? Why are energy bills soaring? And what can the government do to make sure everyone can afford to heat their homes? It is long overdue that we hold these companies accountable, um, not just for their impacts on the climate crisis, but the fact that they are exploiting national non-renewable resources and not paying you know, enough tax on it. What a windfall tax could do is help communities get access to the renewable energy in very localised ways and be allocated to help communities become more resilient in the face of uh, climate change impact. We need to tackle the wider challenges and first and foremost, that is tapping into how we can actually scale a rapid and just transition that's rooted in fairness. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. We're no longer the Weekly Economics Podcast because episodes will now be coming to you every fortnight. But as always, we'll be discussing the most important economic issues with a variety of interesting voices. And to kick us off this new series, this week we're asking, how do we keep everyone warm this spring? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Dr. Joseph Baines, Senior Lecturer in International Political Economy at King's College London. Hi, Joseph. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being with us. And we've also uh, got the fantastic Abby Jatendra, Principal Policy Manager on Energy at Citizens Advice. Such a mouthful. Hi, Abby. <laughs> Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. Let's dive in. So we'll we'll come to you first, Joseph. Could you start us off with, with a big picture and just explain to us what has caused energy bills to go up so much over the last few months? Absolutely. So we can really see this phenomenon in terms of three different dimensions. There's the supply dimension, the demand dimension, and also a dimension relating to UK government policy failure. So beginning with the supply dimension, the first thing to know is that there's been a long-term decline in the UK's North Sea gas reserves. So in the year 2000, almost all of the UK's gas supply needs were met by the UK's continental shelf in the North Sea area. Um, But actually, production now has declined by 65%, so 65% lower than it was in the year 2000. And so what we have now is a situation in which North Sea gas covers just over half of the UK's gas supply. 
And according to some current projections, gas deposits that are being exploited now might actually be exhausted by 2030. So we have an issue of structural decline in terms of uh, North Sea gas deposits. And this means that the UK is increasingly dependent on gas imports and therefore is more vulnerable to any significant price volatility, like the price volatility that we've been experiencing in recent months with the surge in wholesale gas prices. So that's one key supply factor. Another supply factor uh, comes in the form of the decline of Dutch gas production. So um, the Netherlands has, in last five decades, been a really significant exporter of natural gas. But natural gas production in the Netherlands has actually declined by about 75% uh, between 2010 and 2020. And most of the decline in gas production is a result of the rapid depletion of the Groningen gas field in the Netherlands. And now extraction operations are leading to tremors and uh, even many earthquakes in local communities. And as a consequence, the Dutch government has decided that it's going to phase out gas production from the Groningen formation within the next year. And this is a huge factor for the UK because as recently as 15 years ago, the Netherlands accounted for about 20% of the UK's gas imports. A more immediate approximate cause for the soaring wholesale gas prices is the decision by Russia to withhold uh, some of its gas from the European spot markets. And some people think that's because uh, Moscow wants to put pressure on German regulators to approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a pipeline which has just been completed, but it's very controversial. Uh, finally, in terms of the supply side, there's the issue of uh, the maintenance works that Norway has been undertaking with its gas infrastructure, and that's exacerbated uh, the issues regarding supply to the UK. The demand dimension really can be viewed principally in terms of what's been happening in Asia. We've seen quite a significant economic recovery from the COVID slowdown. This is particularly the case with China. Indeed, its power generation has increased by about 8% over the last year. And although most of China's electricity needs are met by coal-fired power plants, the Chinese Communist Party has sought to impose some relatively modest limits on the role of coal in its energy mix. And that's meant that there's a bigger demand for natural gas from China uh, than before. Furthermore, uh, China is quite dependent on hydroelectricity. It accounts for about 20% of China's electricity mix. But over the past year or so, there's been a significant drought, which has undermined hydroelectricity production. This issue of drought actually points our attention to factors relating to climate change, because they actually also play a role in this story. So if we look back at last winter, it was prolonged, particularly in much of the Northern Hemisphere. And that's because of the weakening of the polar vortex. And with the weakening of the polar vortex, a lot of cold air from the Arctic region was pushed southwards into North America and Europe. And that obviously increased demand for natural gas uh, in Europe and North America over the last 12 months or so, particularly last winter. And this led to a depletion of gas stocks, which were held in storage. Around this time last year, gas stocks were 25% below their historic average. And added to the 
particularly prolonged winter in Europe last year. There was a particularly hot summer in Asia, which added to demand for electricity generation as a lot of people in their homes and in their workplaces wanted to keep cool and they cranked up their air conditioning units as a consequence. And I guess the final demand side factor worth mentioning is the fact that wind power has not produced as much electricity as we would like over the last 12 months because of quite low wind speeds, especially last summer. And that also increased demand for gas. Finally, we can think about policy failures of the UK government. So in 2017, the UK government really experienced a dramatic reduction in its long-term gas reserves. So Centrica closed down its rough storage facility, which accounted for about 75% of the country's entire storage. Now, the UK has no long-term storage. The gas stocks that the UK had last year constituted just 6% of annual demand compared to, say, the much larger gas stocks we see on the continent. So Germany, France, and Italy have storage that covers about 20% of their annual demand. So you can see the UK government were taking big risks in terms of not having sufficient storage capacity. And finally, we can talk about perhaps the fact the UK government has been particularly reluctant to pass on the responsibility of reducing gas prices or actually keeping them within uh, tolerable levels to corporations. So we can compare the situation to France, for example. The French government has put a cap on the amount that EDF can charge on consumers. So the bill hikes are basically limited to about 4%. And this obviously is going to reduce the huge financial burden of wholesale price increases on French households. And arguably, the French government's been able to do this because the French government has an 85% stake in EDF. Whereas the UK government's response has been much weaker. We've seen a massive increase in the energy price cap announced uh, earlier this month. And we can see that perhaps 5 million people in the UK will experience fuel poverty in the next few months. Thanks so much, Joseph. So yeah, we'll definitely get into the issue of fuel poverty. I mean, that was a really great kind of comprehensive overview of where we are. And at least it certainly sounds like we're in a kind of perfect storm situation here that is a kind of direct result of factors like climate change, but also, as you say, a series of political decisions that have kind of forced us into this moment of crisis, really. You know, soaring energy bills is, is you know, it's a huge headline grabbing issue at the moment. And I think it's affecting people across the UK at the moment in unprecedented ways. And I want to focus on that a bit more and come to you, Abby, because I know this is really relevant to your work. Recently, the government increased something called the energy price cap. So it'd be great if you could just start by explaining to us what this is and how it will affect people's bills. Absolutely. So what the price cap is, is basically a really important and what's been a really valuable protection to households. When it was initially kind of dreamed up and when it when it came into being in 2019, it was intended to be the absolute upper limit. So the upper limit that somebody would pay on their bills. And usually energy companies, the majority of their tariffs that they would offer to customers would be much, much lower than that. And in fact, uh, at Citizens Advice, we've been doing a lot of work looking at what the market actually looked like before this crisis. And what we see is the tariffs, you know, 
three, four, five years ago were very, very low. Now, as the cost of gas has gone up and we see that the actual you know, cost of operating an energy company has increased, that is when the price gap has had to increase. It increased in, in August by a small amount, but in April, what we're going to see is a generational high, you know, energy prices at an extremely high level, it'll be just shy of £2,000 for the average household. That obviously depends on usage. So if you are, for example, disabled and have, you know, additional needs where you need to keep your home particularly warm, or, you know, your usage is just bigger, you will see costs possibly higher. If you live in a smaller home and your usage needs aren't as much, it will be lower. But that number, you know, £2,000 is a huge, huge jump from what we've had currently. So that's a £700 increase. It's something like £60 a month. And because the majority of people now pay via direct debit, you'll feel that immediately because most people are on something called the standard variable tariff, which is basically the default tariff that is now priced at the price cap. That is something that a year ago, two years ago, it would be remarkable to think that the majority of people in the market, the majority of households would be paying at the price cap level, because as I said, it was only there to be the very, very upper limit. Now it's actually setting the floor for what your tariff is. Citizens Advice, we obviously provide advice to, to millions of people up and down the country. And what we know is a £60 a month increase in your energy bills is not going to be weathered very easily by many, many households. So we crunched the numbers before government put in put in some support. And we found that around 8,000 households would find it unaffordable to weather that kind of increase. Government has put some support in place. So in April, around four in five households will get a council tax rebate of around £150. And then in October, when we think that the price cap is likely to increase again by something like 400, 500 pounds. It's dependent on lots of external variables, including, you know, geopolitical situation in in Russia and, and Ukraine. But we could see that rise again. At that point, people will get a rebate. So basically a loan, what we're calling a kind of buy now, pay later support of 200 pounds in your energy bill, which will be paid off over five years at a sort of low rate of something like 40 pounds a year. Before that support was announced, we were obviously incredibly concerned because people are already struggling at Citizens Advice. We're already seeing unwelcome records be broken. January was an incredibly busy month for Citizens Advice. It was the busiest since the beginning of the pandemic. It was also the busiest on record for us giving out crisis support like food bank referrals. So we're already seeing people really, really struggling at a time when it is cold and people's usage is higher. Now, next winter, when prices are likely to go up again, we don't think that the government support announced is going to be enough. We know that for people on prepayment meters, that's people who basically pay as you go for their energy. They will see in the winter months when their usage goes up, they will see their bills go really, really, really high. So, you know, if you're on a direct debit, you essentially pay a similar amount throughout the year. And in summer, you're effectively in debt to your energy company. In winter, sorry, you're effectively in debt to your energy company. And then in summer, you build up a credit. That's how people effectively pay for fluctuations in their energy bill. But if you're on a prepayment meter, you're literally paying as you use. What we know is people on prepayment meters tend to be on lower incomes 
or more likely to be, um, you know, be in vulnerable situations. And those are the people who really need support. So what Citizens Advice was calling for in April was direct support via the benefit system. The government already has a lever to offer people support. You know, people on benefits are, by definition, people on the lowest incomes. If you give support, a grant to people on the lowest incomes, you know it's going to have a big impact. Instead, government has put some support in place, but we think it's untargeted. It's quite complicated to administer. And really, when energy prices go up in October, when they're likely to, we'll be back on square one, back thinking about how to protect people. And again, thinking, you know, the government support just isn't enough. Mm, thanks, Abby. That was going to be, yeah, I guess my question, you know, after you said we were a little bit relieved to hear these announcements is, is it enough? And it certainly sounds like it's not. I want to come to you on, on that, Joseph. You know, what are your thoughts on what the government has done so far to respond to the cost of living crisis? And how's it all going to play out? Well, I think the government hasn't done enough. And we have to look at this in a broader context. We've seen the longest running squeeze on wages since the Napoleonic Wars, Right, so the situation going into this energy crisis hasn't been good for uh, low-income and middle-income households. And there are many different factors at play uh, with regard to the declining income share of workers in the overall economy. We can talk about declining union density. Uh, We can talk about the changing sectoral composition of the British economy. Uh, But also we have to look at the austerity measures imposed a decade ago, the huge cuts to local councils, and also the really mean and ungenerous welfare support in the form of, say, universal credit. And we can think about also issues relating to the national insurance hikes. All of these things are compounding the pressures on households. Households are already strained by the increased energy cap. So we need to sort of look at the broader perspective here and look at how perhaps with a new sort of policy program, we can redistribute power and income in ways which will significantly mitigate the strains that low-income and middle-income households are experiencing. And with that in mind, I guess when it comes to the energy sector, it's worth breaking things down a little bit and looking at where profits are being made and where power seems to be highly concentrated. So obviously we have the big integrated oil companies like BP and Royal Dutch Shell, which are experiencing huge profits right now. BP's chief executive officer described his company as a cash machine because it was generating such huge cash flows as a consequence of soaring oil and gas prices. And these companies have been paying out literally billions of pounds over the last 10 years in dividends and stock buybacks. I've crunched the numbers. They've paid out about 200 billion pounds in dividends and stock buybacks since 2010. So that's one key area where we see great profitability, particularly in recent months for BP and Shell. And then if we look further down the supply chain, We see the electricity transmission networks and the electricity distribution network operators and the gas distribution networks. And the profit margins that these companies are enjoying is simply eye-watering. So, for example, 
the National Grid, PLC, which is responsible for about 80% of electricity and gas distribution, or sorry, transmission in this country, has been enjoying about 30% profit margins. So that's operating profits divided by revenues. So 30% is huge. Uh, if you look at the FTSE 100 over the last 10 years, their operating profit margins have been about 10%. And then if you look at the distribution network operators, uh, you see even higher profit margins, profit margins of around 40 to 50%. So these are private monopolies that literally have millions of households which are captive to them that are enjoying massive profits and are distributing huge dividends to their shareholders. And with respect to the distribution network operators and the gas distribution networks, these shareholders aren't UK pension funds. Uh, instead, they are sovereign wealth funds from abroad. They are billionaires, such as Warren Buffett, who owns Berkshire Hathaway. He's got a 38% stake in Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire Hathaway owns a key DNO, that's what we call them, a distribution network operator, which services much of North of England. Um, so basically... Warren Buffett has a 38% stake in this DNO. And so all the dividends that's being paying out, well, at least 38% of them are essentially going into Warren Buffett's bank account. And so we can see how this segment of the energy sector has become an embodiment of this extreme form of rentier capitalism, which has proven highly lucrative to the owners of these companies, but has caused um, a significant squeeze on living standards for households facing inflated bills. Absolutely. And I want to circle back on that one in particular, you know, what you're naming there around the kind of extractive or rentier economy that is propping all of this up. Um, Abby, did you want to come in uh, back on that piece around what the government's doing? I know Boris Johnson seems to have gone back and forth on whether he wants to cut VAT on energy bills, for example. Are there other proposals that you think would be a good way forward here? Yeah, I had, I had a few thoughts. I think it's tricky. Uh, really good thoughts from Joseph on the kind of wider profit issues with the gas prices that we're all kind of dealing with, that actually being an energy company that serves customers is actually a loss-making enterprise, which is why we've seen 27 energy companies fail over the last, you know, five, six months, which is, again, really unprecedented. And actually, their failure has actually hiked up our energy bills. So the failure of 27 energy companies has put something like £94 on our bills because, without getting into the technical detail, the costs of supplier failures are basically spread across our bills. Um, and there are various costs as part of that, including payments that the failed energy companies were supposed to pay, but they didn't then basically fall on bill payers to pay and various other payments. So I, I think it is, it's slightly more complex than just purely profiteering. But what I, what I would say just on the government support point, I think really agree with you, Joseph, on particularly the point around the welfare state being really kind of cut to the bone. So we, we did some analysis before support was announced, looking at what the increase in energy bills would really feel like for somebody who was on benefits and for a single adult who was on unemployment benefits, the increase to energy bills would mean that you would be spending something like a third of the money you have 
for you know food and essentials, transport, etc. on energy. That is a huge, huge amount of money to be spending just on your energy bills without even factoring other day-to-day essentials. And it is why we see so many people needing food banks, coming to citizens advice with issues with debt. It's because the benefit system, including universal credit, but also legacy benefits, has A, not kept up with inflation. So even now in April, we're going to see inflation go up by around 7%. Again, unprecedented. This week, inflation has gone up by 5.5%, which is a 30-year high. 7% will take us even higher, of course. At the same time, benefit payments are only being uprated by 3%. So that is effectively a real terms cut for people on the lowest incomes. And again, we know that they can't shoulder that that burden. We reran the numbers, factoring in the support that government has provided. So the £150 council tax rebate, £200 loan. And all that does, again, it's welcome to some extent, but all that does is turn for that person who would have paid a third of their money to energy bills if they're on benefits, all that's done is reduce it to a quarter of your payment. So again, still a huge amount of money that you're spending for an essential, which you can't really cut back on. Again, if you have additional needs and you need to keep your house warm or you've got kids, you don't want to be living in a cold home and you can't. There are serious health issues with doing that. So what we've been calling for is for government to really think about what the role of welfare is in our society why it's not keeping pace with inflation. And then when we get to winter and prices go up again, what support is going to be there? There's something called warm home discount, which is a kind of ready-made bit of support, which basically gives you a discount on your energy bills. The government has chosen not to expand that this winter, despite prices being at an all-time kind of high or a kind of a generational high. We think government needs to go back to the drawing board, really think about what people are going to need this winter and make sure it's in place. I think all of those are really great points by Abby. Just turning back to the issue regarding the energy suppliers, I completely agree with you there, Abby. So a lot of the profit is being concentrated in the distribution networks and the transmission networks. But as you say, the energy suppliers have been feeling a squeeze, particularly uh, the smaller suppliers that have entered the market in, in recent years. So turning our attention back to 2010, we only had about 12 suppliers. By 2018, there were 70 energy suppliers. And the UK government welcomed that because they they thought that that was emblematic of increased competition. But really, the government regulator, Ofgem, which is meant to be regulating the sector, didn't do its due diligence in terms of checking the financial strength of these companies checking whether their balance sheets were properly capitalized and whether they could withstand volatility in wholesale prices. And many of these smaller suppliers were engaging in quite risky practices, not properly hedging their operations. So that meant that when wholesale gas prices were low, they could offer pretty low tariffs to households compared to the big six. But when wholesale prices increased dramatically uh, since September, a lot of them obviously we're just driven out of business. So I would say, again, we have a issue regarding uh, the failure of the UK government to properly regulate this sector. I'm really interested in this issue. So Citizens Advice is is the consumer watchdog for, for energy consumers in the market. And actually, Joseph's completely right. From 2010, what we saw, we refer to it as a market meltdown, 
we've called it out as a wild west. There was basically very little safeguards within the energy market. If you had basically a telephone and a laptop, you could set up an energy company. And we've seen some completely extraordinary examples of energy companies being set up with no customer service standards whatsoever. We asked uh, energy companies that had taken on suppliers that had failed, whether any of the companies that had failed that they had taken on had basically plans for what to do if they failed. Something like 19 out of 20 of the companies we asked said that they didn't have any plans. So that is really, really emblematic of a of a market that was basically left on its own to treat customers as it pleased, basically. And we, we're seeing the impact. So customers, basically, households, people basically pay twice. They pay because their bills are wrong, because energy companies treat them incredibly badly, you know, chasing them for debts that aren't right, giving them, you know, really awful customer service. I'm sure we've all We've all been at the at the end of a phone of an energy company hoping for, you know, one outcome and we've got another. So you pay in that way and then you pay when your energy company fails and then your bills go up by £94. What we've said time and time again is Ofgem needed to get a grip throughout this process to ensure that energy companies that were fit to practice were in the market. And when they broke the rules, they did repeatedly, they were given sanction and told to change their practices. But repeatedly, we didn't see that happening. So unfortunately, this is where we are now. I think that there are questions about whether the market should be running with the big six or or the big seven or, or whatever it is now. But really, from the experience of citizens' advice and what we know from the front line, competition in the way that Ofgem presided over it over the last 10 years has not worked. It hasn't got good outcomes for consumers. And that's what we care about most. It's fascinating. And I think we're we're very lucky to have you because you're both doing such a brilliant job of laying out both the kind of complexities of what's going on here, but also starting to point to some of those solutions. And that's kind of how I want to, how I want to end just making some space for what we could be doing differently on this. I mean, you've both touched on it quite a lot already, but my main questions, I'm just going to say a lot of questions and then you, you folks can have at it. Uh, so one of them is, you know, in terms of the energy market that you've been talking about, would reducing our reliance on fossil fuels like gas actually make gas price rises less of a problem in the future? And what are the other options available to us? For example, nationalizing energy companies, a windfall tax on some of the fossil fuel giants, etc. So that's kind of one half of my uh, solution-based question series. And then the second half is, you know, you may have both said everything you have to say on this, but in terms of government measures, we've agreed, I think, that they're not doing enough, you know, and are there other things that have not yet been covered that we think that they should be doing? So first question on energy markets and the broader system, and second question on the government, and just, yeah, go for it. So in regard to whether windfall tax is a good idea, I think it is a good idea. There are several past precedents we can look to. So, for example, the Thatcher government, no less, in 1981, imposed a windfall tax on the banks because of uh, what they saw as the excess profits of the banks uh, during this significant increase in interest rates at the time. And this raised about £350 million back then, which is about £1.5 billion today. New Labour, when it first came into power in 1997, imposed a windfall tax on utility companies. This is generally seen as being quite a successful measure. It raised about £5 billion, and that was used to uh, retrain people who 
experienced uh, long-term unemployment. Labour in 2001 imposed a supplementary charge on North Sea oil and gas operators, which um, was a 10% surcharge on these operations so above the corporation tax that they were paying. And Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, during Cameron's years as Prime Minister, increased this supplementary charge to 32% in 2011. And what's really interesting about North Sea oil and gas operators in recent years is that they've actually been net beneficiaries of the tax system in the UK. There's some fantastic research recently uh, offered by the Uplift Think Tank, and they found that uh, 19 North Sea oil and gas companies, including BP and Shell, have received £2.5 billion in tax rebates. And this means the UK tax regime on oil and gas companies is the most generous in the world, according to the Uplift Think Tank. This huge increase in profits is not something that they deserve. It's something that um, should be taxed properly, and these tax receipts can be used for reducing the financial burden that millions of households in the UK are experiencing with respect to their gas bills and electricity bills. And with respect to nationalisation, I think also it has great merit within some segments of the energy sector. Indeed, it's extremely popular. So the independent newspaper carried out a poll in September, and it found that over 50% of the British public are in favour of nationalising energy utilities in the context of the current crisis. And also public ownership of energy utilities is not uncommon. So 15 out of 19 countries in the OECD have got their electricity and gas distribution utilities under public ownership. And in this regard, the UK, Spain, Italy and Portugal are outliers. And if we were to nationalise some segments of the energy sector, then what we could do is ensure that there aren't these fire and rehire strategies which lay off workers and rehire them on reduced terms. It can give the government a degree of strategic control over how companies are operating so they better serve the needs of customers and also accelerate processes of decarbonisation. So I think both windfall taxes and nationalisation in some contexts can be very fruitful measures indeed. Thank you so much, Joseph. Over to you, Abby. What what are we missing here? What else should we be doing? Yeah, so from my perspective and from the kind of citizens advice perspective, thinking about kind of people's pockets, which is really where this is going to be felt most strongly, there's a couple of things. So in terms of longer term reliance on gas and fossil fuels, I think that's that's completely central to this. I mean, the net zero transition is going to be, if done right, will reduce our bills and will reduce our likelihood of the kind of price volatility that we've been experiencing over the last kind of six months and will probably be experiencing for the next couple of years. There's a huge number of things that need to happen as part of that, but central to that is is what net, net zero means for our homes. So things like insulation, heat pumps, you know, electric vehicles, it's the changes that people will make and will have to make that will be so central to this. And we really think government needs to step in 
make it really easy for people to make those choices and where people can't afford to make those switches to step in and, and offer that financial support. That's one part of the puzzle. And that's kind of the long game. I think in terms of just this coming winter and the next couple of years, as I've said, we need some kind of settlement this winter because if prices go up again by 400, 500 pounds, people just won't be able to manage. And it's kind of unthinkable to think what might happen. So support is needed. There's a whole range of levers that government has to pull. And again, we think the best way to do so is via the benefit system, because that is a kind of hypodermic needle that gets you to the people who really need support. There are other ways as well. So for example, warm home discount. As we look further, there are lots of calls for the price cap to be scrapped, which we think are premature because the price cap has actually been one of the most helpful kinds of protection for people in this process. So without the price cap in August and September, when we started seeing gas prices go up, your energy bills would have gone up immediately. So if we're talking about low income households, where you're really budgeting month to month very tightly, it would be, again, really, really challenging. So the price cap has done a really good job, but there is a world beyond the price cap. And there are people talking about things like social tariffs, where you have specific lower costs for essential bills like gas and electricity for people who are, for example, on benefits, so people who are on low incomes. That is one thing that we're thinking about and that others are also thinking about. But there is the broader question then of why are people's incomes just so low that they can't weather this kind of price volatility. I mean, the volatility we're talking about here is pretty massive. You have to be in a good financial situation to be able to weather that. But again, it comes back to welfare and to the benefit system. So thinking about inflation and seeing where it's going, we can't think of benefits in the way that we do now. It can't be threadbare. It can't be something that leads you to you know, need a food bank just to make ends meet we need the government to really put money back into that system that has been taken out. And then just finally, around the specific kind of market meltdown issues that we were talking about, as I said, one part of why our energy bills have gone up is because energy companies failed when they shouldn't have really, because the market should have been functioning much better. In that space, it is very much down to Ofgem and the government to really make sure that the energy market, which is so important to our lives, it's I mean, currently, it's probably the biggest bill you pay if it wasn't already. And it is just so central in a country like ours where you, you do need to have the heating on um, and obviously you need to turn the lights on. So important. And the market up until now hasn't been working in the best interest of consumers and will be pushing very hard and will be looking very closely at Ofgem and how they treat rule breaking going forward because we need a market that works well. People's energy prices are going up we're all going to be expecting more from our energy provider and they need to step up. And that means Ofgem needs to step up to really drive up standards and really have a culture change. The experiment of competition over consumers hasn't worked and the balance needs to be redrawn. I think that's a great place to finish. There's just so much work to do. Thank you both so much for being here. I think it's a great way to kick off the new series because it sounds like so much of both the problems you're describing, but also the solutions are kind of 
ultimately at the moment they're being fought for across the new economy movement. It's everything, as you say, from kind of welfare to insulating homes better to taxing people the appropriate amount. And that's really what we're here to kind of talk about on the podcast. So I can't thank you enough. But sadly, that is all we've got time for on this episode of the new economics podcast. But if you would like to get involved in Neff's campaign to retrofit Britain's cold and drafty homes, head over to the Great Homes Upgrade website at greathomesupgrade.org. That was hard to say. Dr. Joseph Baines, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? Well, I'm not on Twitter, but um, they can just Google me and they can uh, find all my articles there and they can find all the work that I'm doing with the Commonwealth Think Tank, my colleague Sandy Hager at City University. Fantastic. And Abby Jatendra, thank you so much as well. Same question. How can people find out what you're up to? I, I am on Twitter. Joseph, get on Twitter. What are you doing? Um, yeah, I'm Abby Abaya, A-B-H-A-Y-A, and uh, I work for Citizens Advice. So if you have listened to this podcast and you feel really worried about being able to pay your own energy bills, do you know get in touch with Citizens Advice, Google us, you'll find uh, lots of advice on our advice pages. And yeah, I'm just aware that like a lot of people are affected by this. So we want to make sure that people are getting the help they need. Totally. And thank you so much both for all the amazing work that you're doing on this. That is it for today's new economics podcast, but we'll be back in two weeks. Don't worry. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, believe it or not, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm still Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.